Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, where our job is to help you build visibility, professional credibility, and connection with your ideal client by putting the human at the center of innovative marketing so you can build and strengthen an engaging, enduring relationship with your ideal clients. I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm honored that you're here with me. If you haven't joined our wonderful marketing transformation community yet, go to innovabiz.co and collect your free gift as well. Do subscribe to the show and also leave a review because it helps others find us. Let's get into today's masterclass on this InnovaBuzz podcast. Perhaps maybe the most daring thing to do is to ask for things, you know, ask for the opportunity, ask for the interview, ask for the check, ask the universe for the outcome you're, you're looking for. I think there's so much power in attention. There's so much power in asking for things that you want to experience, you know, that are the right things. It can't be selfish, but the right things um, that if you don't, I don't think that the, I don't think the universe can conspire to help you if you're not open enough to ask. Uh, and it's amazing how the ideas come and the people come to make it work when you do. Welcome back. I hope you've had an awesome week so far. If you haven't yet listened to my recent conversations with Lingmo founder Danny May and creativity expert David Chislett, then do go listen in but only after you've listened to today's conversation. I'm really excited to have on the InnovaBuzz podcast as my guest today, David Kidder, who's an entrepreneur and an angel investor in over 40 companies. He is currently the co-founder and CEO of Bionic, a company that unlocks new growth for the world's most competitive enterprises by leveraging the mindsets and methodologies of venture capital and entrepreneurship. Previously, David served as the co-founder and CEO of Clickable and co-founded the SmartRay Network. He's a graduate of the Rochester Institute of Technology and received Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year Award in 2008. He's the creator and co-author of the New York Times best-selling series, The Intellectual Devotional, and the Startup Playbook. His latest book, New to Big, was published in April of 2019. In our discussion today, David talked to me about knowing your proprietary gifts and the need you care most about. We talked about moving from a focus on what he describes as the total addressable marketplace to the total addressable problem. And we talked about an obsessive focus on caring for your customers and the solution to their problems. Without further ado then, let's fly into the hive and get the buzz from David Kidder. (music) 
Hi, I'm your host, Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz, and I'm really excited to welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast today from New York in the USA, David Kidder, who's the CEO of Bionic and also the co-author of the book, New to Big. Welcome to the InnovaBuzz podcast, David. It's a real privilege to have you as my guest. Very grateful to be here. Rita McGrath, who was our guest on episode 380, uh, 341 of the Innova Buzz podcast, suggested that we have a conversation with you, David. So a big hello to Rita. Yeah, Rita's wonderful uh, friend and collaborator and uh, uh, on the vanguard of kind of all the best ideas around innovation for big companies, for sure. Yeah, and we had a fabulous conversation around innovation on that episode 341. Now, um, tell us a little bit about Bionic. What, what's the purpose of Bionic and what drives you? Well, we wrote The Purpose of Bionic about eight years ago. It's our eighth anniversary uh, in January this year. Um, it's to ignite growth revolutions. And we work with large organizations in many ways to refound them. You know, these are the companies like P&G or General Mills or Citigroup or others who are going through disruptive moments. And it's not a question of talent or money. It's really about mindset and systems that, have, that lead them to growth. And we focus on installing a growth capability that becomes permanent at the leadership level and deep into the organization. So that's fascinating about the, the mindset of innovation and, and reacting to disruption. Now, I know in the book, New to Big, you talk about that many of the big corporations lost their way in the mid 20th century and they got stuck in some bad habits and that modern startups now have developed a more dynamic way of doing things and, and there's probably lots of things that bigger companies can learn from that. So tell us a little bit more about that. What are, what are some of those things? Well, the idea that large organizations are designed for efficiency, that big to bigger, right? We have advanced degrees as describing, right? They're designed really to focus on what's knowable, right? It's planning and it's, you know, where past precedence is a great predictor of future outcome. That's a, it's a huge part of, you know, the job to be done is when you're capturing marketplace exists. And it's it's linear in many cases. You're sort of chasing press releases of your competitors in some instances. The customers know. When you go for growth, it's really about moving from linear to portfolio. We call this TAM to TAP, from a total addressable marketplace view of the world to total addressable problem or need. And it help, what that does is it helps force companies to sort of end the inside-out R&D focus, making um, you know solutions for problems to building from the outside in, solving from those needs, and then coming back to the company and saying, what are our proprietary gifts? And it, it, it sort of like brings a new intellectual honesty and a search for what are we the best in the world at and what's the need in the world that we can solve? When that starts to happen, we no longer make five big bets a year that are all have to work, right? We start launching large mm. volumes with large volumes of failure as well. And the ideas that die very quickly reveal the ones that are actually commercially true. It's because we can see around the whole problem. We can discover ourselves of why us and why now. Hmm. Yeah, very powerful questions, the why us, why now. But tell us a little bit before we get on to that part, tell us a little bit more about how how is the total addressable market model and the total addressable problem model, which is what you're um, advocating, how is how is that different? Well, one exists today, right? We can research, we can know it. Uh, there's budgets for it, right? But what happened when, when uh, I should say there's budgets and behavior for it. But when the marketplaces are disrupted, not only is the budget for things disrupted, people have to change the way they spend, 
But more importantly is their behavior change changes, how they purchase something, the model has changed, the products change, where, where they buy it, location, geography, segments. These, especially in an era of kind of halfway through a global pandemic, as we can tell, the needs of the world have radically changed. I think one of the things that's sort of like setting into people's minds right now as we come into January, which I hope is halfway through this journey together, is that um, you know some of the profound changes might actually be permanent. I think people in their minds are thinking, well, I'll get back to an old behavior, when in fact, now it's become cement in their day-to-day -day life. I don't care if this is commercial or you know, professional life, there's new needs, new behaviors, and it's the job of a company to solve them and to move with them as they change. That cannot be a fixed mindset. It can only come from a growth mindset and growth tools that discover that new commercial truth. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of changes brought about by the pandemic. And there's, uh, it's interesting to see the different approaches some companies are taking to that. And um, the ones that are being very successful are certainly looking at, well, what are the, what are the needs coming out of this now? And what, where are the things that we can contribute to? So tell us a little bit more about this idea of proprietary gifts, because I think that's the that's the match then, isn't it? If you understand, okay, here's, here's what's changing in the world. Here's some new addressable problems that are out there that nobody else is dealing with or, or they're not being dealt with adequately. So how, how do we then turn that around and say, well, how can I contribute to this? It's a great question. It's something that um, often has to be learned, uh, often through failure, right? Because you, you think you're great at something and then you turn out, oh, I guess I wasn't very good at that. You want to be great at something. And in fact, <laughs> It's maybe not a gift in this. And uh, you have to set down um, biases and, and uh, needs, so to speak, of yourself, uh, not like a company. So proprietary gifts are things that are impossible to replicate. They're advantages. In fact, in many cases, they're almost like an unfair advantage. You've been, done, you've been doing something for so long or you have such scale and or such, you know, impossible to replicate science or technology or marketplace or distribution. There's lots of forms of this. That if you went to marketplace with that unfair advantage, the rest of the marketplace would be terrified, right? They see it as something that would take decades or a decade at least, that kind of Gladwellian 10,000 hours to solve. So I think of proprietary gifts as the secret and as it's revealed, the marketplace, it's clear that this impossible to replicate skill will end up solving the new need in the world. Hmm. All right. Well, that's... That's fascinating. I, one, of, one of the thoughts I had there, though, and, and this comes back to my experience when I was a young man working for ACFA in the days of film photography, as, as the digital revolution, digital photography revolution was just starting, how do you get into this mindset of proprietary gifts, but at the same time, avoid the complacency of saying, well, I've got this thing that's impossible to replicate, so I'm just going to milk that for all it's worth, and and not look forward and build. Um, in some ways, I mean, there's a there's a a view that advocates you should be disrupting your own business models all the time. Um, that that might be a bit extreme, but how do you get to the point where you have a a portfolio of of new ideas that that are ready to run when the environment changes or when something changes. I'd be curious that Agfa, do you remember the was the global strategy or the strategy of the company at the time uh, when it failed or was disrupted? It was 
Well, they, they basically were taken, they were blindsided by the digital photography. Um, you know, when Sony first released the Mavica into the consumer market, it was pretty poor quality. And um, yeah, it wasn't true digital either. It just couldn't compete with film at all. And they basically got really scared because they saw the potential threat of digital photography, but then looked at the actual quality of what was there at that time and said, oh, this is never going to be as good as film. And and then really didn't have a strategy for looking forward and saying, you know, why have these guys invested heavily in uh, in launching a consumer product, even though it might not be that good measured against film of the day. Um, and also there are a whole lot of patents available in the public literature that indicated, you know, that this technology was being rapidly developed to improve. Yeah. I mean, one of the great lessons of startup uh, journeys is that, you know, when you're successful uh, uh, of disrupting a space, in many cases, it has nothing to do with you. It's an outside force, right? You're there, you're right in on time. So, um, so no amount of money or your balance sheet or market position can prevent something that's happening to you if you don't want it to. So, for example, with the Sony Mavica, which you can buy on eBay now for about $4, it was one of the first digital cameras that came with a three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk with a hard disk you plug inside of it. But if you thought about it from an outside force perspective, you'd say, well, you know, it's a, it's a four-megapixel mega, camera, and to get to a paper, you'd have to be in the 20s and 30s. What would have to be true from a first principles logic perspective for that device, you know, in a generic sense, to disrupt the film space? And it wouldn't take long to figure out that Moore's law, computation, pixel, all the components of a camera that could eventually disrupt paper and film, classically sense, wouldn't would be less than, you know, 15 years or 12 years, or in this case, about eight to 10 years. You know, I, I actually... Mm graduated university studying industrial design and worked for Kodak for a summer in my junior year, I won this ID Magazine Award for a DCS, a digital capture unit, DCU camera design made, and up working with them for an entire summer when they first started launching digital cameras. And, you know, but the principle of the company was, was, you know, we are in the film business. When in reality, it's sort of like um, some mm. CEOs that I meet with, they'll, they'll say, you know, you know, what's your strategy? It would be like, yeah, AGFA, you know, 10 pieces of paper a day, you know, 10 photos a day, right? Well, that's really not your problem. That's, that's sorry, that is your problem. It's not a customer problem. When in reality, it's about capturing experiences, right? And so the question mm -hmm. is, are capturing moments. We're in the moment capturing business. And so the question is, is, well, what's the best solution in the world to capture those moments? And what is those, how would we solve that? Maybe in that view of the world, the total address will need is capturing moments and not making your film work or your paper work otherwise. So that's an inside out view of the world. It's not unlike today, I, I was with a CEO who runs a huge airline and uh, they're obviously getting massively disrupted because the world of airlines have just gotten smaller. But one of the statistics that's coming out of this is that about 30 to 40% of travel was contributed uh, and will be fully disrupted because people bought tickets for the first meeting. And I would argue that the, it's the end of the first meeting in business. And so while face-to-face -face business matters, the first meeting, which is 40% of the revenue, is going away. So maybe they should have been mm -hmm. the company to buy Blue Jeans Networks as opposed to having Verizon buy them. Yeah. Because if you think about the need, it's not the plane, it's not the film, it's not the paper. It's how do we solve that need because we have the right, the permission, the trust to meet that need in the world.
but the company needs the permission widely as opposed to making what you have work to solving the problem. And that's the shift from TAM to TAP. What's the actual customer problem from the outside in? Then go back and say, mm. what is our proprietary gift? And I bet they could have rediscovered that and probably saved the company, even if the company was smaller, but at least they would have survived in the same way they had in the past. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's your. I, I absolutely agree with you. That's a really powerful question to say, you know, what business are we, are we really in and chunking up and seeing that from the customer point of view. And, and absolutely, um, at ACFA, the same as your experience at Kodak, they were, we'll just make better films, we'll just make better photographic paper. That's what, you know, they said, we're in the business of making film and paper. Yeah, and it's, I mean, if, if you have a cultural leadership, at the very least, who can't change the core, at least they can build a new core. In this case, is I'd rather disrupt myself than be disruptive. You know, there's a classic kind of good bank, bad bank philosophy, which is, you know, maybe I have a bad bank that I can't fix for a variety of reasons. I should milk that, burn it off, because it's, it's an old behavior, while reinvesting those assets into a new bank that ends up building into the new behavior. And those arcs of those two futures, those two outside forests, one declining, one accelerating, will eventually eclipse each other. But you must be on the outside, the right outside force. So going back to growth mindset is, you know, growth mindset is in a way is like lenses, right? You view the world through, right? We, we look and see something that someone can't see. So the question is, is what lenses are we looking through? So if you spent hundreds of hours with the best entrepreneurs in the world, you'd probably write a book. It's called The Startup Playbook. I wrote about 10 years ago. And you ask them, how do you bet your life? Elon Musk, Reid Hoffman, who wrote the foreword of the book, uh, Sarah Blakely of, of Spanx fame. How do you bet your life? And if you listen carefully, they would say any great disruptor bets their life through the following five lenses. And we'll dig into this later, but I'll just tell you what from. The first is proprietary gift. Why you? What's the secret? Unfair advantage. Impossible to replicate skill. Number two is extreme focus, right? One problem, one solution. Not 10 options. Optionality is the enemy. It's about discovering what is the right one. And the third is, is you got to build painkillers, not vitamins. Been saying that for now for 10 years. To <laughs> And the last two are about execution. You have to over-index and over-invest in the one thing that creates a 10x outcome. You can be 10 times better than anybody else in the world, that thing. And lastly is you got to build monopolies, hooks and barbs and customers so they can't leave within three years. So if, you, if your idea, both by intent, giftedness, and execution, lives and survives through those lenses, in the first three years, you typically have a position that will scale. Not all businesses saw, saw past those five lenses, they don't need to, but they mu those first three must be true. Hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating. The, I mean, the extreme focus, I think that's uh, something that I'm, I'm, I'm seeing really clearly when I focus really intensely, then all of a sudden things things start to happen a lot more it's kind of almost counterintuitive the more narrow you focus the more wider you you cast your net of people that are attracted to what you're doing uh, but the the painkiller not vitamins tell us a little bit more about that philosophy well it's fun because this that that idea is now being more widely quoted over the last decade but it comes from a couple conversations but it means that you want to be solving chronic lifelong malignant customer problems you don't want things that are perishable. You try it once, you set it down. And so you want something that is, is really something that you can solve repeatedly and become the best at. So if someone tries your offering once and never returns to it or doesn't want to pay for it, 
it's very hard to get the cycles in the business to be able to perfect something to be the best. And it's not unlike focus either. I mean, the more options you have uh, is the enemy, right? The more things you do, the more mediocre you are. You have to have night and day obsession, you know, conscious, subconscious, waking and sleeping. So you can ruminate and let your brain in its quiet hours and its waking hours solve a need. And that is not, you know, without focus, if there's too many options, you never get to that pain. You never get to a customer mm. who keeps repeating it. In a way, a repeating customer is a type of focus on your solution because they keep coming back to it. Those cycles redeem execution in, uh, uh, revolutions that allow you to prove it and perfect it to be able to win a whole marketplace because you're focused. Yeah. All right. Well, as as we kind of look at those customer pain points and looking at how, how can we take away that pain as a focus, what what's the role? You mentioned it earlier in the conversation, rapid experiments, and uh, what's the role of rapid experiments and also embracing failure? Well, success is a bad educator. So you always learn 10 times as much through failure to success. That's a truism, at least in my life. Um, I met, you know, it's, you know, Eric Reese has really pioneered the whole lean startup movement. And it's great, but I think you need lots of pieces to make this work. We like to refer to it as validation. But that whole build, measure, learn model is really something that's really, is, is, is as much about the cycles of learning as it is forcing you to go back and really think through first principles logic of how to solve something, right? Is to do the tear down of the pieces, the assumptions, so you can reassemble them into what is possible. Um, right down to like the cost of goods, uh, to the, the, the cycles of revolution. You, you need something that helps you to discover a truth as opposed to make it true. And uh, validation, Lean, is really a great tool set that allows you to iterate and experiment so that you can actually get a customer to reveal their intent. So you go out and talk to them in the beginning and then you go back and make something. That's a survey, that's an interview, et cetera, classic more ethnography. But when you're dealing with experiments, the thing that gets revealed is customers' behaviors. It's the do versus say. That's where the commercial truth mm. lives, right? Because the one thing that doesn't lie when you look at the truth is behaviors. Behaviors don't lie. So we want to really use experimentation so that a customer who doesn't even need know they need something, and even being in a different way, can reveal themselves and their intent through the behaviors through a process. Um, that often may disrupt themselves, whether they know it or not. Sometimes they can't even tell you. Yeah. Mm. So some of that is is getting something in their hands, even though it's far from perfect, and understanding how they respond to that. Are they willing to pay money for it? Are they willing to buy it? Does it give them the results that they're looking for? Yeah, there's. I think it's, uh, I'm not sure if it was Reed Hoffman or, um, you know, Sam Alton of uh, Y Combinator said, if you're not like horribly embarrassed by your first product, you're not moving fast enough. <laughs> so I think, I think it's true. I think you need to know, like it's about, I mean, you, you should assume you're going to quit most of the things you try. So you want to get to like the signals as fast as you can, not perfect answers, like good enough. You know, the, the, the idea is becoming less broken as you move forward. Hmm. So it's about lots of experiments, but, but doing them quickly and also the learning part. Yeah, I mean, if you if you look at the stages of venture, the investment stages, seed rounds, A rounds, B rounds, C rounds, each one of those stages is another funding gate, right? So it's it's sort of like engendered life. I will continue to invest if 
you know, this becomes true. They're not trying to solve the whole business. They're trying to like not die, right? That's the whole purpose of the first couple of years is how do I not die, right? <laughs> and how do I meet that future? How am, I, how am I not dead when the future shows up and this outside force shows up? So what's interesting is that, you know, you get you know, the stages of, you know, a business becoming undead in a way is signals, right? Behavioral signals that turn into exchange of value, which are indicators. Some could be like, you know, behavior of logins or engagement. Some could be revenue, right? Contracts. You know, um, and those indicators really not all are equal. So you want to find the one or two that matter. I call them the God metrics. So going from signals to indicators mm -hmm. to the God metrics and then become the actual metrics of the business that you scale. And by then you're in your B or C round, which is we've now constrained the business. We get our rapid cycles of learning in the beginning and then we release it once we know what is the what is the one or two metrics that make the whole business true. Yeah. And having completed that cycle, then what what are the next steps? So, um, first of all, to grow the fledgling product, but also to then make sure that you're still innovating beyond that. So, what's the next what's the next um, innovation? Well, one is I'd make sure that I stayed obsessed with the problem and not chasing my competitors' press releases, which is important because <laughs> they should be aware of it, but just not you know when you're really focused. One of my uh, former investors uh, used to say that, you know, competition is for losers. It's more valuable to create a marketplace mm -hmm. and call people into it than chase other people's marketplaces. So, you know, build a one-on-one -on -one company in the world that is cares more, basically. But um, also in those stages, you know, getting, getting the business right means that, you know, you have to set down old truths. So you have to be a learning culture. You can't just be you know, continue to, you know, flog what you have worked the last. And the reason why that is, because what I've learned, and I think this is common amongst VCs, is that, you know, in the beginning, a lot of the, you know, the first revenue streams are often the wrong revenue streams, right? They, the first arc looks like it's going to scale, but it's really the second arc of revenue that makes the business work and grows it the fastest. And so, like, you need to be prepared for that because, you know, it's part of the evolution of how customers evolve is that, you can't just solve part of the problem, you have to solve the whole problem, which means model innovation is going to matter, all sorts of components are going to matter in making the business work. Yeah. So again, it's it comes back to focusing on that, um, what the customer problems are, the total addressable problem model. Yep. And at the same time, also being really obsessed about the success of the customers. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, that's their uh, that's their signal is that they're actually experiencing success, and you know, you're getting rewarded for a small part of that. Um, I think a good ratio is sort of, you know, you're keeping you know 10% of a hundred x return or 10 times return based on what they're paying you. When you have that type of value, you're indispensable. Hmm. Yeah, 10x. You mentioned 10x earlier. <laughs> it's. Um, it's interesting. I don't know who said this, but it, I, I'm reminded of that again. Uh, often reminded of this is um, your customers don't pay your bills. Oh, sorry, your your competitors don't pay your bills. Your customers pay your bills. So why are you focusing on the competition side? Right, and it's all. I think you know. It, I have personally experienced that whoever cares the most wins most often. Um, you just you just you invest more, care more, do more than most anybody else if you're organized correctly at a cultural level. You get that north star, that obsession, 
if it's aligned with a customer problem? And that's a really important question is, is, is my organization aligned with the need in the world, my customer need? And if it's not, it's focused on your need, you know, what you have to fix in your business or what we have to invent. I would argue that you're in deep trouble. Mm. And again, that comes back to asking that question, what is the real need? You know, is it, is it um, fill more paper or is it um, tra airline travel? Or is it yeah. something else? And every business has a perfect example of that. You know, everybody's trying to sell mm. more of what they have as opposed to solving the whole problem or solving more. That that's a really huge distinction in the mind of the of the of the buyer, so to speak, is is you know who's all in with me. Hmm. All right. Well, let's let's switch gears a little bit and talk about Bionic and and in particular because you mentioned the example of the airline and and the impact of the pandemic over the last well, it's over twelve months now as we record this. Um, so how how did you at Bionic handle the pandemic and what what have you taken out of that? What lessons have you taken out of that? Well, we took it really seriously. Um, you know, we're a you know over twenty million dollar service company, bootstrapped for the last uh, bunch of years. So you know, with no one behind you, um, and I've I've raised a lot of venture capital, built SaaS companies prior to this, and service companies. But this one was unique, is that we were the only investors, and so we had to be. You have to take that very seriously. I would say that um, what I did was uh, as a CEO is I we we organized a, a, a pre mortem as a team in March. And we asked the question to the leadership team, why did Bionic fail? And so we started on December mm -hmm. 31st, just a couple of weeks ago. We looked back and we said, why did the company fail? That's a burning question. And we started to break down that reflection into about three or four critical areas of the things that we theoretically did not do. And then we started to map out how to solve those risks. And we built teams around them. And we worked night and day, six days a week, you know, six, eight, 10, 12 hour days sometimes to be able to de-risk the business around those key pillars of risk. And, you know, uh, you know, recognizing that sometimes the outside forces are so great, you can't affect them, but you can control the decisions you make, can make. And because of that, the ability to deliver our service remotely, be able to, to go public with our story, to build relationships digitally, really um, was remarkable. And so we not only were, did we survive this last year, but we thrived. We were actually, we actually grew and we're forecasting a big growth rate this next year um, because, you know, we met, we met the challenge and it was, um, it was difficult, but a lot of companies had the same difficulties. If you try to preserve, you know, your business that moment, if you freeze and you're trying to hold on mm. to this, I call, I wrote this piece in LinkedIn with uh, a professor at Harvard, uh, Gautam Macundo, Around, I call it the he called the the bowl is broken. Companies that try to preserve the rigid culture they perfected for decades, um, in the past when they had stress on it, a crack in it happened, there was a recession or a product broke or a big bet, they could like micromanage their way through it. They could fix it because they had it was rigid and there was a crack and there was not many things revolving around it. But in this case, the pandemic smashed the organization. The bowl is broken. And so the question is, is do we go back and we put together that smash bowl or do we pick up the few pieces that were true proprietary gifts and do we rebuild an organization that's elastic and flexible and concussion proof and is a membrane that can survive almost anything 
because it's flexibility and that can hold more than one or two big things. That's a very different company. Mm. And so right now going forward, it's a simple metaphor, but I think companies that can adopt a growth mindset and the systems will end up with uh, cultures and systems that truly are defensible going forward. Yeah, yeah, it's a interesting metaphor. I, I think one of the things that stands out to me though, you know, you mentioned earlier about who cares most wins and the importance of, of relationships and having a customer focus, understanding the customer problems. And you, you talked there about Bionic uh, using online tools and virtual meetings and so on to continue to build those relationships and, and even perhaps forge new ones. And so to me, that's, that's really key. And it comes back to those fundamentals of, you know, it's about relationships. It's about caring about the success of your customer and, and their well-being as well in, in these times in particular. And so going back to those fundamentals and then looking at, well, what, what other tools can I use other than traveling around the country or in-person meetings, which are now impacted, is, is um, the big lesson for me out of that. Yeah, I, th I think you know, we always overvalue what we know and we undervalue what we can learn who we can become, right? We, 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 we want to preserve stuff because it's predictable, it's knowable, it's our experiences. And, you know, the lesson in all this is, is that uh, actually, no, you don't need to travel 150, 200 days a year to build a business. In fact, you know, those who care about the environment and, you know, care about their time may actually insist that you don't travel so they can keep that time and they can keep that fuel of the air because they know it's overvalued. It doesn't mean that face-to-face -face, those things aren't going to be, but let's we can preserve that time for experiences that are going to move my business forward, move my personal life forward. Um, and, you know, as a father of three, you know, moderately young sons, uh, having done, I think I did 190 days of the road two years ago prior to COVID, of which a third of that, more than half, a little less than half is my family, um, I, just, I just think it's unnecessary and I won't do it again. It's mm. too big. I'll, I'll give you a quick 30-second story. I, I am working late tonight uh, in the office. I've been, I've been in the office, you know, a, a half a dozen times the last year. And my middle son, Stephen, came to me last night. And he said, uh, he said uh, are you home tomorrow? I said, no, I'm going to go to the office. I've gone three times this year. He goes, oh, really? He goes, oh, it's, he goes, I really love having you around. And he gives me a hug. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, like I'm always here. <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm going yeah. to the office once in a year. And you're like, we're not home. And it just goes to show yeah. you like, you know, how important that glue is and, uh, and how much I was mm. never around by comparison. So I will, I personally will never go back for that exact reason. The lesson that Steven just taught me last night, mm. my business is fine. My, my kids are healthier and, and my life is fuller because of it. Mm. That that's beautiful. That's a beautiful example. And as someone that, um, in the corporate world, years ago, I used to travel 30 to 40% of my time internationally and was often away for important things with my kids. Uh, I can certainly relate yeah. to that now. You know, of course, that was before the internet, a lot of that yeah. travel yeah. time. So it, it um, was, it's a lot easier these days to substitute the travel with technology that can still build those relationships and, yeah. and you know, show that you care about customers at the same time as having that really close connection with family that's so important. Absolutely true. 
Um, I think, again, yeah, relationships are always better in person. I think we recognize there's the energy in a room. There's the there's the, literally the dimension of people that matter. Ambient learning, the collisions, all those things. Um, but I think getting it, getting it balanced right, I think, is really our path mm. forward. And, you know, sitting with this change, there's the, I think people are kind of halfway through this pandemic in their mind, but we may be living with COVID or some version of it forever. I think the decisions that we're making now, we kind of have to start making them. We're, we're now, this is a new permanence and a new, I think it's, it's been, uh, it's a new, a, a new weight, so to speak, at this chapter that I think people are starting to set in like, okay, this, this could be another year. This could be another uh, chapter. And, I think these new behaviors are going to be cemented as permanent in their lives. Hmm. What What's your view on the impact that, you know, people traveling less and finding a different balance between in-person meetings and, and remote virtual meetings, uh, the impact that that's going to have on the airline industry. And the other one that I, I think about quite often is, um, you know, what you mentioned, you might come into the office once uh, once or twice or three times a month, as opposed to every day, uh, how how is that going to impact on commercial office space and and that business? I would say I, I I listen. I think there's people who are you know catastrophically predicting you know permanent change uh, for travel, business travel, and business real estate. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on what you think is catastrophic. Is that 10%? Is that 60, 80? My guess, and I've done a fair amount of you know, reading just you know, in aggregate in a generalized way, is I would bet that 40% of travel goes away, is my guess. I think that it'll be almost, it'll be more than, you know, in the past, you know, whatever, you know, 30% would be, you know, travel for recreation and experiences and the rest would be business would otherwise. If, you know, I think we'll do more travel for experiences because we can work anywhere and a lot less business travel. Yeah. So I think it's, I don't think we'd be traveling less. I think it'd be more experiences because we work anywhere, but less for business because we can work anywhere. So that's the point, but an aggregate will be mm. much less. I think it's true for the office spaces. I mean, we, you know, we, you can, you can grab space anywhere in the world today, There's, but I don't think you need permanent assets. I mean, we have a huge space in New York, which I'm sitting in now. We just built two years ago, 24,000 square feet. And we're going we're to go to a lab now. So half the space, but we're going to start thinking that because I personally don't want to be coming to work five days a week, but I will come three or two. Or when I, I'll mm. concentrate my calendar, I'll start blocking things out, which I'm already doing um, because I do want to be around people and I want to do it. I do want to have this experience. And also, I love my kids, but also it's hard to get work done. Um, <laughs> There's a balance though, but I won't be doing anywhere near the community of traveling I've ever did in my career again, ever. Hmm. Which is a gift. All right. Yeah, it is. Yes, that's right. Because one of the things I always um, responded to people in, in the days when I was traveling so much, people said, oh, you're lucky you've got this fabulous dream job. You're traveling all over the world, seeing all these different places. And I said, well, you know, I spend probably hundreds of hours standing in queues to check into hotels, to check into airline flights, to go through security. And then when I get to this wonderful uh, new country, I spend all my time in meetings. And yes, I meet lots of interesting people, but I don't get to see anything outside of those meetings. Exactly. <laughs> it's all work. It's all and, work. And, and the amount of time 
that I'm spending just dead time where I'm in the air. At least I can do something when I'm in the air, but on the ground, standing in queues, waiting to check into a hotel, waiting to check into the flight, going through security, you know, the connections, it's enormous. I didn't, yeah, I mean, it's the energy. I just, I, you know, you have a limited set of energy and time and you have to apply it. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, now that I'm doing, you know, we're all doing, you know, eight to eight, to eight hours a day on Zoom, you know, we are in a way traveling into people's lives. We're doing, but we were able to do it, yeah. I don't know, five times faster. And so I think, I think right. the key yeah. is, is that, you know, I think what leaders also need to do is, is to not create FOMO, fear of missing the office. I, I, I think that this is, you know, a gender equality issue. It's a culture issue that, you know, when, you know, the first person to take an in-person meeting is going to have an advantage. Well, can you be in the office and still be a leader? Can you be out of the office and still be a leader? Can two people have a career in the home where the mother or father doesn't have to trade off of being at the office or at home and still have the same effective outcome? Think of all the equality imbalances, you know, economic mm. imbalances, all the lost talent opportunity because someone was forced to be at work when they can work anywhere. I mean, this is truly one of the things I think is going to be most extraordinary. So as a CEO, I mean, my business is small, but I, I, I hang out with a lot of, you know, huge CEOs is I just encourage them not to recreate that old past is to allow um, everybody to succeed that is not geographically, you know, dependent on where they are, just who they are. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really important point. I mean, one of the things that I've always said about um, remote working and remote teams is that it opens up the possibility of a much bigger talent pool and access to, you know, skill sets and, and, people and personalities that you wouldn't have if you're geographically bound. But the other point, of course, is the more equality as well in terms of gender with, you know, for example, mothers staying at home that, that can continue their career because they don't have the separation from their children or the travel times and that we talked about earlier and so on. And also the, the different, um, yeah, access to different countries and, and different uh, groups. Yeah. So my, uh, my wife has a company called genderfair.com, and they, they focus on gender equality in organizations, kind of like fair trade but for women or gender. But it, this is a real issue. And I think it's a huge opportunity for people to make significant permanent change with the tools mm -hmm. that we have. And, um, you know, I my, my company is fairly diverse, about 40% BIPOC and 52 or 55% female. And my co-founder is, is an amazing woman. And, and I think these are things that even though we're small, you know, 50, 60 people, we can still affect a lot of lives. We, what we, we, live, we lead a leveraged life. We can impact a lot of companies who can make the same decisions. And, and uh, let's use these platforms to promote those ideas. Mm, great. Well, exciting times ahead. I agree. All right. Well, um, I think it's, um, I'm just watching the time here. I think it's a good point now to move on to the buzz, which is our innovation round. And it's designed to help our audience who are primarily innovators and leaders in their field with some tips from your experience. So I've got five questions. Hopefully you'll give us some really insightful answers and inspire the listener to go and do something awesome today as a result. Okay. So what do you think the number one thing is anyone needs to do to be more innovative? 
have an abundance mindset, non-zero as opposed to zero sum. Yeah, non-zero mindset. Yeah, And we've talked about that quite a bit here. So asking questions like, um, what business am I really in? What's the real problem yep. of my customer? How can I how can I care more about them than anybody else? I agree. The world's big. All right. What's the best thing you've done to develop new ideas? I keep a five minute journal that I open and close my day with, and it has three questions about, you know, what am I grateful for? Um, you know, what surprised me today? And then my third is typically, you know, the asks of the universe or God, whatever you believe in. Um, and within that, uh, I inevitably ask for ideas and it's amazing. They come. And so you start to look with intention. So it's, uh, even if you have a rough day or a couple rough weeks, sometimes it's hard to figure out where you are in the journey. That five minute journal by beginning in the day helps orient you, orients me that I'm making progress, uh, even when I can't feel it. Hmm. So you have, you have some set questions that you ask yourself and then you write Right. Yep. The Those three questions, morning, a.m. and p.m., it takes five minutes each, but it bookends your day so that even if you have a bad day, you, you know you began and ended in a place that's where growth can be experienced as opposed to feeling lost sometimes. Sometimes it's, uh, it's a tough road no matter what. Hmm. Love it. All right. Now, do you have a favorite resource you use most often? My favorite resource is a website called Quora. It's a question and answer site. I love it. I'm addicted to it. I just, there's so many great questions. There's so many great ideas and learning. And uh, you could dig into almost any topic and get expert advice or just, you know, even random advice. But it's, it's a wonderful, wonderful tool and it's inspiring. Hmm. Yeah, I, I come across Quora quite a lot um, when I'm asking questions on the internet. So it, it certainly is. And it's a peer to peer thing too. Oh, I love it. it. You can, awesome. First of all, I mean, we talked about identifying customer problems and digging deeper into those. And certainly uh, people post questions on Quora because they're having a problem with something. So you can kind of get a sense of what's on people's minds. Right. And then, of course, there's lots of people that answer the questions. Yes, it's fun. You could, you could also track the really crazy topics, and I do that too. So it's, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> All right. Um, what's the best way to keep a, a client on track? Uh, well, I, when I wrote The Purpose of Bionic, it was to ignite growth revolutions. And I used to think about the, that in the context of like new startups or, my, you know, the economic impact. But the reality is it's, you know, my business and what, I'm, what I get excited about is just that that question is the interior life of the leader. It's about permission. And so as long as the permission in them is growing, they're growing. Um, and so they're, they're leaving a, a living a, a limitless life as opposed to one that you're trying to control sometimes. And so I look to that as being one of the great indicators of growth is that they expand the permission that they allow for themselves, their teams, and their companies to grow. Hmm. Fascinating. So how, how do you suggest you go about that? Um, well, I'll give, you, I'll give you a simple one, which is let, let's let's take one of your ambitions this year. Um, let's take one of your goals. And then I want you to maximize it by 10 times. So let's say you want to generate, I don't know, a million dollars in revenue or you want to impact a half a million people. Let's let's shoot. How, how do you get to 10? How do you get to 10 million people? How do you get to 100 million people? Just expand your thinking. 
and, and start mm. reimagining the permission of what's possible and then work backwards from that. It's a great exercise. And what you realize is that you're just a couple choices away from those outcomes. But the permission to think that way, to believe and then work backwards, just hasn't been given. And it's often just not granted by you. Hmm, it's fascinating. And so I'm just thinking in terms of some of my goals there around um, number of podcasts to produce this year, <laughs> 10x. So yes, good questions. Well, they're, they're, they're encouraging for all of us, including myself. So it's a great reminder to, hmm. to think bigger. All right. And what's the number one thing anyone can do to differentiate themselves? Um, I think just focus on your proprietary gift. Maybe completely ignore the competitive landscape would be a good a good suggestion. <laughs> I mean, you know, at the old, yeah. really, like at the end of the day, like you know, being the sometimes being the anti of something is a good idea. You know, mm. Bionic is the anti-McKinsey. Great. Now they could never be us, and we could never be them. You know, you're the anti of like. Like sometimes it's it's not negative to say you're the opposite of, but it helps you just stretch your thinking of saying, how do I be truly one of one in the world? And sometimes letting go of the competitive landscape, in fact, altogether ignoring it and taking that energy and putting it to the deepest level into the need helps you reimagine how to describe yourself the claims you can make in the world about knowing or believing or solving um, and just reshapes, reshapes the narrative about a marketplace or yourself in it. I think those are daring ideas because we want to, we want, we want context for our work. We want to, you know, we, we all in a way suffer from the sin of comparison, but when you could set it down and release yourself, that way of thinking would help maybe in redefine, you know, everything. Hmm. Yeah, I love it. Focusing on, on, on the need, intense focus on the need, and um, really understanding your proprietary gifts. Yep. All right. Well, thanks, David. This has been really fabulous. Now, where can people find out more about you and about Bionic and get a hold of the book? Yeah. Uh, New to Big. Well, certainly Amazon. Maybe even reach out and say thank you. <laughs> certainly, Amazon is an easy place to go. You can just look up, you know, David Kidder there. Um, my comp if you're in a big company and you you're going through digital or growth transformation, you can go to onbionic.com. O-N-B-I-O-N-I-C.com. Um, I do a lot of speaking publicly, um, as well as just, you know, lead, you know, writing and, and thinking out loud and these type of conversations, which I love. And those are at uh, davidskitter.com. davidskitter.com. So listen, um, you know, I'm I'm the same, you know, humble learning journey that everybody else is and uh, trying to contribute where I can. And hopefully those places are resources for you. Wonderful. And we'll share those in show those links in the show notes so people can click straight through and uh, find out more. Thank you. Do you have some parting advice today for our listener? Oh, um, I've been thinking a lot about how to lead, you know, through this journey. And what I've arrived at is this idea that, um, in the absence of a map, a map of the future, in the absence of control <laughs> planning, there's really only two things that can guide us right now. One is our purpose, the North Star. You mm. need to know why you're doing something. It matters more than ever because you have to be able to indefinitely work with sometimes a lack of control and a lack of definition of where you are. So that has to lead you. So why matters. 
the purpose. And secondly is, is that you have to be able to start your day over again each day. And that is really being able to know yourself and your priorities well enough to choose the next right thing. And then be able to set it down and rest and be restored. That's how the Navy SEALs survived the great test of their life is a rolling crisis. It's not to be controlled. It's not to be predicted because that's what saps your energy. It's a, it never lets you rest. And rest is really the key is to be able to know what you control or know what you know and leave the uncontrollable, unknowable things outside those boundaries, making the right choices of the, each day, beginning anew with fully rested into your purpose. So into your purpose and do the next right thing, I think, are the key for the second half of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And knowing your purpose, I mean, there's lots of um, learnings there, I guess, from your exercise that you mentioned earlier about the journaling that people can dig into what, what is it that really drives me and what's my purpose. And also then I, I really love the idea of, um, you know, re release the worry. Don't worry about what you can't control. Um, and focus on what's the next step to move you forward towards that purpose. I'll, I'll, let me, I'll share this last thing because I know we're over now, but I'll, I'll, here's the, perhaps maybe the most daring thing to do is to ask, <laughs> is, is to ask for things. You know, ask for yeah. the opportunity, ask for the interview, ask for the check, ask the universe for the outcome you're, you're looking for. I think there's so much power in attention. There's so much power in asking for things that you want to experience, you know, that are the right things. It can't be selfish, but the right things. Um, that if you don't, I don't think that the, I don't think the universe conspire to help you if you're not open enough to ask. Uh, and it's amazing how the ideas come and the people come to make it work when you do. Yeah, yeah, I love it. And the, um, again, I've got another quote, but I don't know who said this one either. It's, uh, if you don't ask, the answer is always no. That's right. That's Bloomberg's, uh, Michael Bloomberg's Law of Success, which is ask for the check and shut up. Okay. You'd be amazed what happens. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. All right. Now, finally, who else should I get on the show and why? Well, one of my favorite entrepreneurs is uh, Seth Besmertmeck, who's the founder and CEO of Conductor. And he's an amazing human being. I'd be happy to introduce you to him. And uh, he's a longtime friend, but he's uh, truly a, a, a purpose-driven leader who's built, you know, you know, a company multiple times and is someone who I extraordinarily admire. So I would, I would think that Seth would be perfect for you. All right. Well, that's wonderful. And we'll take you up on that offer of an introduction and uh, reach out to Seth and bring him on the show as well. Awesome. So thanks. Thanks so much for sharing your time and your insights with us so generously, David. I've really enjoyed our conversation today and learned lots of new things. I've got heaps of notes here that will turn into show notes for this episode. I wish you all the best for the future and let's stay in touch. Awesome, very grateful, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that insightful and informative conversation with David and took something away from his episode. There were so many gold nuggets in this conversation with David. The ones that resonated most with me were out caring the competition, Purpose matters more than ever, and starting with the next thing. I'd love to know what you took away from David's episode. Leave a comment below the blog post, which you can find at innovabiz.co forward slash David Kidder. That is D-A-V-I-D-K-I-D-D-E-R. 
all lowercase, all one word, innovabiz.co forward slash David Kidder. You'll also find information for getting in touch with David there, as well as links to the Bionic website, the new to big book and website, and his social media pages, as well as the other resources we spoke about in the conversation today. Now, if you like this episode, please share it with two other people that it might help. There's so much gold in this if if it helps some other people take some steps to grow their business. That would be absolutely wonderful. Tag me in that share and I'll reach out to you with a special thank you surprise. David suggested that we have a conversation with Seth Besmetnik, co-founder of Conductor on a future InnovaBuzz podcast episode. So Seth, keep an eye on your inbox for an invitation from us to the InnovaBuzz podcast, courtesy of David Kidder. Tune in again to the next episodes of the InnovaBuzz podcast, where we've got yet more fantastic guests lined up, including customer and employee experience advocate Jason Bradshaw and innovation and lean startup expert Steve Weinstein. Thanks for listening to this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show to be reminded of new episodes. It's free to subscribe. Leave a review if you like. Even if you don't like me, I'm okay with that. I'm asking you to leave a review because it helps other people find this show. Go to innovabiz.co to join our marketing transformation community and access a free gift my team and I made for you. It's the Marketing Master Mini Class. We want to give you everything you need to transform your marketing into a human-centered, relationship-focused growth engine. Until next time, I'm Jürgen Strauss from InnovaBiz. Remember, be awesome and keep innovating.